through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the 59th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, March the 4th, 2021. This is April Now, WLRN's grumpy gardening member who enjoys the laziness of no-till agriculture and the thrill of sowing seeds of patriarchal destruction in equal measure. This month's edition focuses on sex and sexuality. While we know that sex is a material and physical reality, our sexuality and sexual behaviors are socially influenced and constructed. We'll take a look at what that means under the patriarchy for the construction of female sexuality, whether lesbian, bisexual, or straight. We'll hear an excerpt of an interview WLRN's Mare Safina did with Sheila Jeffries, lesbian feminist author and activist from the UK. We'll also hear WLRN Sekhmet Shiawal's thoughtful commentary on the topic. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's Emily Ann Lorenzen with Women's News from Around the Globe for this Thursday, March 4th, 2021. In France, several feminist groups held protests in support of a woman who was raped by 20 firefighters when she was between 13 and 15 years old. The woman, who the media calls Julie, appealed the decision which only charged three men with sexual violation. In France, it is illegal for someone in a position of authority to have sex with someone under the age of 18. The perpetrator can only be charged with rape if there is proof that the victim was forced or violently coerced. This case highlights the lack of protections for children in French law. The prosecution hopes that Julie's case will lay the foundation for the age of consent to be at least 15. In January, the Senate backed a bill to make the age of consent 13. On March 17th, the court will make a decision regarding Julie's appeal. In Russia, several hundred women formed human chains on Valentine's Day in support of Yulia the wife of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny and other political prisoners. 300 women gathered in Moscow and 100 women gathered in St. Petersburg. Navalny was arrested after he returned to Russia 
after seeking medical treatment in Germany for nerve agent poisoning. At least 10,000 people have been detained during widespread protests against his being jailed. Momoko Nojo started an online campaign against Yojir Mori, the Tokyo Olympics chief, and the sexist remarks he made, stating that women talk too much. The hashtag Don't Be Silent campaign gathered more than 150,000 signatures worldwide. Mori has since quit, and Siko Hashimoto is now the Olympics chief, a woman who has competed in seven Olympic Games. The Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee is expected to add at least 11 women to its expanded panel of 35 to 45. With these changes, 40% of the board will be women. In the Krishna district in India, 220 rape cases were reported in 2020, and the majority of the perpetrators were minors who confessed to committing the crimes after watching pornography. Child psychologists are concerned about children and teenagers accessing pornography, which can lead to addiction and, quote, abnormal characteristics such as anger, sadism, perversion, sexual coercion, or just sexual gratification. The psychologists attributed the rise in sexual crimes to access to pornographic content on websites and lack of parental supervision, unquote. There were protests in both Venezuela and Argentina last month as the numbers of murdered women keeps rising. Femicide has been a huge issue in both countries, and protesters want justice reform and for women to be able to walk down the street without fear. In 2020, there were 256 femicides in Venezuela and nearly 300 femicides in Argentina. In India, Sanjit Tor started a publication called Karti Darti that focuses on women's experiences and is led by an all-woman team. Women in the Delhi region are given a voice, even the women who are illiterate and have the paper read out loud to them. Many of these women are farmers and are facing new laws that could undermine their livelihoods. Noshin Ali wrote an editorial for the publication where she explains that, quote, in a patriarchal society, both women and land are considered property that has to be protected. For women farmers, however, land is something they nourish and care for. Their participation in the current protest movement, therefore, comes from a place of familial love, but also creates an opportunity for them to step out of a world shaped by it." On February 24th, the House passed the Equality Act, which would replace the definition of sex with gender identity in law. In order to pass the Senate, all 50 Democrats and 10 Republicans are needed to pass it. The Equality Act passing the House is being lauded as a, quote, victory for LGBTQ Americans, unquote and any opposition is being framed as transphobic by the mainstream media. WLRN's Jenna DeQuarto and Thistle Patterson are heading to Washington, D.C. to participate and cover the Women Picket D.C. event organized by a coalition of feminists and feminist groups on March 8th. Stay tuned to our social media pages for information about what WLRN 
is doing on the ground in DC. For more information about the picket, visit womenpicketdc.org. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. I'm Emily Ann Lorenzen. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing WLRnewscontact at gmail.com and let us know what's going on. was Girl in Red with her song, Girls. 
Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview WLRN's Mayor Safina did with author and activist Sheila Jeffries. Sheila Jeffries' contributions to the women's liberation movement are enormous, to say the least. We are very happy and proud to feature her voice on WLRN's Airwaves. Look for the full interview Mayor did with Sheila on WLRN's YouTube channel. All right, Sheila, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I have read your most recent book, Trigger Warning, and I'm delighted to, to discuss some of the deeper, more philosophical challenges that I think your book addresses. But first, can you just tell us briefly a little bit about yourself? Yes, I was involved in the women's liberation movement in Britain in the 1970s and 80s and became a lesbian. And indeed, there's a whole chapter in that book, my memoir on choosing to be a lesbian. I became a lesbian feminist because of my politics. Uh, In 1991, I went to the US to get a job in a university at the University of Melbourne, and I taught there for 25 years and became a professor and wrote lots of books. And I think the one I'm doing now is my 12th or something, but actually I I lose count at the moment. So that's who I am. And I came back to Britain so I could get involved in feminist and lesbian feminist politics again. And here in the UK, I'm involved with the Women's Human Rights Campaign, which created the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights and promotes that against the incursions of men with female gender identities into the category of women. So that's who I am. Fabulous. Well, and I want to say too, thank you so much for uh, your dedication and just championship of women. Um, I have been familiar with your work for years and and after reading Trigger Warning, it's just um, fantastic to see all of your work come together. I do want to ask you, a lot of the book that you've written and the work that you've done is around sexuality as a social construct. So I'm curious, how do you believe that sexuality is socially constructed and what does that actually mean for women living in a patriarchal society? Well, once upon a time in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, it was understood that human behavior was socially constructed and that indeed categories of oppression were very much socially constructed as well in the sense that race and sex were constructed as subordinate categories with certain kinds of behavior in order to control uh, black people, women, and so on. So social construction was the order of the day. Sociologists um, theorized social construction and of course um, promoted and taught social construction. Uh, Therefore, we understood at that time that what we called sex stereotypes, what is now called gender, which is women having to be wear high-heeled shoes and liking to clean the toilet and all forms of behavior, are socially constructed. Uh, If that were not the case, then, you know, um, obviously it would be reasonable to oppress women because they are more stupid and only want to do housework and so on and so on. Um, so we, the very basis of feminism is an understanding of social construction. That's where we came into this game. And at that time, too, in the 70s and 80s, we understood sexuality to be socially constructed. Um, we created an analysis of heterosexuality as a social construction. 
as an institution, not necessarily socially constructed in, in the terms of whether somebody was fancied somebody else, but as, as a social construction, socially constructed to make sure that women serviced men um, in the house through child rearing, emotional labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that men could control them. So uh, uh, alongside that, of course, we understood that because heterosexuality was socially constructed, so was lesbianism in the sense that lesbianism was forbidden and constructed to be something evil and deviant and so on. Whereas, in fact, we understood that women could choose to be lesbians and they could leave heterosexuality, as many, many, many thousands did at that time to become lesbians. It was undoubtedly socially constructed because there were women in their 70s becoming lesbians, women after several marriages, women with many children and becoming very happily lesbians for the rest of their lives. That's hard to understand now because we're in a very, very conservative political time when uh, there are even younger lesbians who should, of course, be in the forefront, uh, assuming that lesbianism is something biological, which means that they think that heterosexuality is something biological as well, that simply cannot change. I had a PhD student who uh, worked on interviewing women who'd become lesbians in the 70s, 80s and 90s about why they thought they'd become so. She found that the ones who became lesbians in the 70s believed they chose, almost all. In the 80s, half and half, some chose, some thought they, it was biological. By the 90s, most thought it was biological. So it shows you that the social context in which you make these decisions about your life are politi is politically constructed. And that constructs the way you think about what you do. That's so interesting because I, I completely agree with you, actually. I didn't necessarily before you gave that answer. Um, one concept that stood out to me is, is, of course, choosing to be a lesbian because one of the arguments that my millennial peers and I have used for, for women's rights is that our sexuality is innate and it's not a choice. And, and you just spoke about in the 90s, that was what was considered just a fact. Um, so I'm also curious, why do you believe that women can and should, most importantly, choose lesbian? as a pathway towards liberation? Well, I believe women can because of course they do in their many, 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 many thousands. But back in the 1970s, I was involved in writing a, a paper for a conference called the Political Lesbian Paper, in which we argued that feminists should indeed become lesbians because it fitted best with their politics, because to be heterosexual women and to go out to your meeting in the evening, have a wonderful time in the exotic and erotic atmosphere of thinking things and feeling excited with other women and then go home to Nigel uh, was a very strange thing. And we argued that actually putting all your politics and your social life and your love and who you did sex with, putting all of that together as lesbian feminism was obviously the most straightforward and sensible thing to do. But of course, heterosexuality is absolutely enforced upon women, and it's very hard for women to make those choices, and many feel completely unable to do that. And do you think it's safer for some women to stay in the closet, and maybe in some situations the best choice for their own personal safety? Well, that depends where you're talking about and in which cultures and which societies, because there are some situations in which women will get killed for becoming lesbians. And, and, and that does happen, of course. And some societies like South Africa, where there's you know, corrective rape exercised against lesbians by men, it's much less safe to be, be lesbians. So it does depend upon what women, the, the constraints of women's lives, obviously. 
Absolutely. What is it about lesbianism and lesbian culture that you believe makes it a threat to patriarchy? Well, because heterosexuality is absolutely fundamental to patriarchy as a political institution, men need to maintain that. And they maintain that by ensuring that women are heterosexual. Women get sexually aggressed against and often penetrated from a very young age. So women don't even have a chance to begin to understand what they might like to do with their bodies or who they might like to love. Men enforce heterosexuality on women. If you think just sitting in a pub, a man will come up and say, are you ladies on, the, on your own? Um, so the, the enforcement of heterosexuality is total. So because men actually gain so much from it, not only do they gain children and the control of children, but of course they gain sexual access, they gain all of their, their housework being done, their emotional labor, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very, very important and worth a huge amount in the world economy. So all of those things mean that lesbianism is very dangerous to male supremacy because, of course, lesbianism is a, a situation in which women can get you know, shared housework and childcare. They can have more sexual satisfaction. They're much more less likely to be killed. So there's all kinds of reasons why lesbianism is obviously a very sensible choice um, for women. Uh, which is why these days it's been pretty much suppressed. There's very little about lesbians. Lots of women are too afraid to call themselves lesbians anymore. They call themselves queer or non-binary. This is not true of gay men. They don't have to call themselves all the things under the sun. They can just be gay men. But we're in a very conservative time when, again, it's become quite difficult to be a lesbian because of, I mean, the book I'm writing at the moment is about the, the male sex right and the male sexual imperative. Um, and lesbians escape that. And because we're at a time when the, the, the male sex right is absolutely universal through all the paraphilias and prostitution and so on, women simply cannot be allowed to be lesbians. Absolutely. I agree, um, especially when it comes to the nomenclature like queer and um, non-binary. I find that uh, being a lesbian isn't cool. There, there are so few young lesbians and it, it really does break my heart. Do you think it's possible though that larger numbers of women might choose to be lesbians like they did in the 1970s? And how do you envision, if so, that this act might change society and have a lasting effect? Well, the reason, one of the main reasons we were able to do all of that then is that we had created a lesbian, a women's and lesbian community and culture we had discos every night of the week. There's no women's discos now. Everything was women only. Uh, we had, you know, women's centers. We had women's conferences. We had loads of women's meetings about all kinds of topics with loads of women's newsletters. We had women's bookshops. We had all sorts of things that it's impossible to imagine now when there is nothing women only at all. And of course, when you create all of those spaces and women are able to live whole lives with each other in such communities, lesbianism is kind of inevitable, really, because women get excited by a move towards each other. And, and that's the situation. But of course, that that also has a great uh, effect upon society. And we did uh, create considerable changes. As I talk about in Trigger Warning, I think we did make a big difference to the way sexuality was thought about at that time, because of course we had a lesbian perspective, uh, meaning that a, a very different way of understanding the world, a very different way of understanding sexuality, and of course, uh, those of us in Britain, lesbian feminists were involved in trying to eroticize sexuality. 
against the say, the masochism of male dominant sexuality in which there has to be a bottom and a top. And we said that women could actually have egalitarian relationships with each other. And we got a long way in promoting those ideas. So yes, I think lesbian feminism, because of the very different perspective, particularly around sexuality, is absolutely crucial to creating social change. So we've got a very difficult time at the moment, I mean, where sadomasochism is absolutely rife. Women are being expected to understand as part of ordinary sex, um, anal sex, which gives them no pleasure, strangulation, all as perfectly ordinary things they were supposed to do. Whereas, you know, back in the 1970s, one of the demands of the women's liberation movement in the UK was a self-defined sexuality for women. I mean, that's almost impossible to imagine. So yes, I think a very strong lesbian feminism, and lesbian feminism was the heart of the movement at that time, is crucial to, to changing ideas, changing the culture for women. It's hard for me to even grasp some of that as you're speaking about it, because you're right, it's so difficult for, for us to find those spaces. So what does it feel like and look like to be immersed in a healthy lesbian culture? And um, maybe as a second component of that, how would you go about convincing women uh, into choosing lesbianism? Well, all I can say is that back in the day, you know, early 1980s, let us say, um, we had the lesbian history group, you know, which had tours around buildings where lesbians had lived, which had Mary Daly come to speak, and so on and so on, and looked at literature and history. So we had a culture to, to fit ourselves into, an understanding of lesbians in history mm -hmm. that was very important to constructing who we were. Uh, we were, had the London Lesbian Archive that I was involved with to, to save what we, just, what we were creating and, and our past. Uh, we had lesbian theatre um, and we, you know, a lot of it extremely funny. Uh, we had lesbian bands that also sang very funny and very passionate songs. Uh, so we were immersed in the culture. We had common cultural reference. We had the same posters on our walls. We had the same scissor earrings in our ears. And so we lived in... Uh, a community which is now very difficult to, under, to imagine because we're all so separate from one another. And I think the second part of the question you were asking was something about turning women into lesbians? Uh, how would you... <laughs> oh, the dream, isn't it? How would you go about recruiting women into lesbianism? Um, I don't know that I recruit, actually, mm. uh, but I do go around saying it can be chosen. Sure. And that can be quite effective because there are women who say to me, I had never thought of that. It had never occurred to me. And they do become lesbians. So I think making the possibility by being prepared to say these things is very important. And there are a lot of lesbians, particularly young ones, even some who call themselves feminists, who get terribly cross with me. They are absolutely determined that their lesbianism is innate, something that they can't help, something that they were born with, rather than a glorious choice and part of creating a revolution. Um, and it's, it's very unfortunate that they should think in this way. It's very um, old fashioned and retrogressive, but they often are very cross with me. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's at all possible for a heterosexual relationship to be egalitarian? 
I think heterosexual women and some heterosexual men do their very best. But the fact is they are in unequal positions in the hierarchy of gender. Um, that's the situation. So whatever they even manage to do in their bedroom that they try to make egalitarian, even if they try to be egalitarian in the kitchen, as soon as they go out of the house, it is very different for that man and the woman in their workplaces, in the streets, socializing with friends. It's not equal and it's never going to be equal. And the fact is, if that man beats that woman up or kills her, he will be treated very, very differently and very leniently because he is a man. So I know there are heterosexuals who try their very best, but it can never be a level playing field. I mean, what I talk about um, in my book, Anticlimax, in fact, is about um, heteros heterosexual desire and homosexual desire. And I say there that hetero means different um, and usually a difference of power. So I understand heterosexual desire to be a form of sadomasochism. But I don't because it's about eroticizing power difference. But I do think that lesbians and gay men can or do potentially heterosexual desire. And I think heterosexual people don't necessarily have to do that. They can go for homosexual desire. They can try and do that, which is sameness of power and not power difference. So I like to sort of change those words around a little and also you know, give some credibility to my heterosexual friends who are trying very hard to create egalitarian relationships. They really are, and all respect to them. Sure. And among lesbians, what do you think is an effective way to promote the eroticizing of equality while avoiding the eroticizing of domination? Well, that is a rather big question. First of all, you have to criticize the eroticizing of dominance and submission. Um, and you have to um, create more space for the eroticizing of equality. Uh, and I used to have discussions about this sometimes with my students who would say, what do you do if you have, and we used to talk about this, in fact, in the movement, if you have sadomasochistic fantasies, for instance, which women are most likely to have because women are born into inequality. They're born into subordination. They're treated as inferior. Often men and boys have aggressed against them sexually. So they don't usually have equality and certainly not power to eroticize. So it's very likely that women will be masochistic in their fantasy life. So the question then has to be, I think, can you do anything about that? We thought you could. Back in the early 1980s, we used to have sort of um, workshops at conferences and things where we talk about sexual fantasies and encourage women to laugh, to say what their sexual fantasies were and to laugh. Laughter's wonderful. It takes the ooh out of it and makes it just absolutely ridiculous. So I think, yes, you can change your fantasy life. You can actually move towards a sexuality of equality. And you know, people say, well, you know, how will I have sexual, sexual a pleasure, a pleasure that they associate with uh, a dominance and submission sexuality? Well, I think, I think you certainly can, um, because sexual pleasure often you know, arises from situations that are, in the end, not very good for us and do not move us forward in being uh, powerful revolutionaries in our lives. So I certainly think it is possible for women to shut down 
the parts of their sexuality that are created around dominance and submission and open up the parts, and all of them will know that too, that are actually constructed around equality. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Um, and in Trigger Warning, you also wrote about therapy as a way of sometimes subduing women's anger. Um, do you think that there are some forms of therapy or maybe even some use cases of therapy where it could, it could actually be beneficial for women? I, of course, was part of a movement which didn't have therapy. There might have been therapy in the States in the early 70s, but it hadn't really come to the UK. Nobody was in therapy. Nobody was doing therapy. Mm. And indeed, when I was involved in organising the Women and Mental Health Conference in 1976 in London, there was really no feminist therapy. But these women came to it, said they were feminist therapists, and pretty much took it over and built an empire out of it. And of course, there's an empire to be made because women suffer very, very serious mental health problems as a result of growing up as girls and being women under oppression. There's no question that women suffer very serious mental health problems as a result of that. But the problem with therapy, and I did write at the time a paper called um, uh, Consciousness Raising or Revolution, something else in which I talked about how therapy is about... Um, reform mm -hmm. and consciousness raising is about revolution because therapy is very much about individualizing your, your problems. Um, it's not collective. Women don't usually do therapy in a gang. Um, and there's, there's somebody who's the high priest who has a position of authority. Um, so it's not equal ever. Um, and very often, I think it is about calming women down. I do talk in, in Trigger Warning about a woman who was into co-counseling saying to me back in the mid-70s mm -hmm. that I should do co-counseling, which was supposed to be better because there was no high priest. It was just two women chatting to each other. And that was supposed to be better. And she said it would, it would help me because it would reduce my anger. And I was absolutely horrified. I thought, oh my God, she wants to stop me being a feminist. And of course... I've been furious all my life. My fury keeps me going. Mm -hmm. I'm furious. I go bird watching other things as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, am, I have a rage inside me, as all feminists need to have if we're going to change the world. So we had very, very developed critique of therapy in the late 70s and, and 1980s in the US too, in the journal Lesbian Ethics, there were lots of pieces about whether therapy was a good idea and the problems that often the therapists would sleep with their patients and whether that was okay or not. And it was supposed to be because it was okay because it was completely equal. It was two women. Therapy is never equal. There's nothing equal about it. So we had a very developed um, political critique of therapy because of course we'd all come out of a time in the 1960s when there was the anti-psychiatry movement. There was Thomas Satz's book, The Myth of Mental Illness. There were books, you know, The Radical Therapist, all kinds of books that critique the whole psychiatry profession and therapy itself. Jeffrey Masson's book, Against Therapy, takes apart every single kind of therapy. I know this is hard for an American audience to understand, because in America, therapy is absolutely huge. Probably most women have been through it in some form. I, I don't know. But to criticize it is probably seen as some kind of heathen anathema for women in, in America, much more even than from it is here. 
It is interesting. I'd never considered it before and how the dynamic of a patient and a therapist will never be equal, even if they are two women. I've never even heard that type of dialogue or question raised before. So I will be very keen to hear how our listeners react to that and if they have they have further questions on that. So thank you for, for walking me through that as well. Um, and what do you say when people call you a prude? I've been called a prude because I, dis- I disagree with the politics of kink sex. What is your response to that? I think what we all should do is wear bra- uh, badges saying prude because prude, um, originally the etymology of the word is it means good. Prude femme was a, a good woman. Um, and proud, ha- ha- the etymology is the same. Mary Daly says we could, should call ourselves proud prudes. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely agree. A prude is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. It means you're exercising your powers of discrimination and your powers of judgment and working out what is good for women and what is good for yourself. And um, it's a wonderful thing to be a prude. An agency. You have agency over your body as well. I love that. I love that. Um, well, Sheila, those are all the questions that I, I have for us today. Thank you so much for your time and for this interview and ultimately for your constant and unfailing commitment to women. Such a pleasure getting to chat with you today. Yeah, very nice to tra- chat with you as well, Mo. Thank you very much. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Your real From across the femisphere to women worldwide, worldwide, to women worldwide, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier. This is your, 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 your grassroots community radio station, your radio station, grassroots. This is your grassroots community radio station, women's liberation radio news. Patriarchy is about sex. And I don't just mean biological sex. I mean patriarchy is about sexual intercourse, and more specifically about men getting to have the sexual intercourse they want with women and girls. For this reason, female sexuality and social behavior are political, whether we like it or not. If politics and patriarchy are about power, and men use their power over women to maintain sexual access to us, How could our female sexual behavior not be political? Women of all sexual orientations, including many self-identified feminists, strongly resist the idea that their sexuality is political and try to argue that it is a purely personal, private thing, a neutral fact that none of us can do much about. They do not want their sexual behavior and lifestyle choices critiqued or challenged. 
Heterosexual and bisexual women want to keep living the traditional heterosexual lifestyle, regardless of whatever complaints they have about men in general, or their men in particular, because that lifestyle grants them social and economic privilege and status. They become emotionally attached to the men they get sexually involved with, whether those men are objectively good for them or not, and don't want feminism to demand they give the men up or condemn them for being anti-feminist in their behavior. Meanwhile, many lesbians don't want their sexuality politicized because they're afraid of heterosexual and bisexual women pretending to be lesbians out of a misguided attempt to be good feminists or make a political statement about their feelings toward men. As long as we live in a world where males seek to dominate and control women and girls for the purpose of having sex with us and breeding children with us, our sexual behavior will have political meaning and significance, whatever that behavior is. We are not born or grow up in societies that treat sexuality as neutral. None of us come from or live in a culture where all sexual orientations and behaviors, where all lifestyles, are treated as equally good, natural, and healthy. To my knowledge, there has never in the history of the world been a culture that promotes homosexuality, female-only households, and female child freedom as equally desirable and beneficial as heterosexuality and motherhood. This is not coincidence. It is patriarchal culture. It is heterosexual male culture. Little girls are taught from birth by the heterosexual adults around them that heterosexual marriage and motherhood are inevitable. They are not presented with any other options, and they are groomed throughout childhood to be feminine heterosexual women. When we talk about compulsory heterosexuality, we're talking about that grooming and those social expectations, but we're also talking about the pro-heterosexual propaganda that permeates our media, the pro-heterosexual messages delivered by all patriarchal religions, the pro-heterosexual information presented in schools, and the corresponding invisibility of all other lifestyles, including homosexuality, voluntary singlehood, non-romantic primary partners, and child freedom. Compulsory heterosexuality is the reason many homosexuals and bisexuals do not figure out their sexuality until adulthood, after they've already performed heterosexuality in adolescence and young adulthood. But I'd also like to suggest that compulsory heterosexuality is the reason most women lead heterosexual lives. Feminists have been arguing for decades over why lesbians are lesbians, but the question we should be asking is why are heterosexual women heterosexual? Why do most women choose to be sexually and romantically involved with men despite all the male violence, male misogyny, male sexual predation and oppression they have experienced and seen other women experience? Why do women choose to marry and live with and have sex and children with men even when much of the heterosexual intercourse they have is either boring, painful, or degrading? And when these men fail to be satisfying marital, domestic, and romantic partners? Why do women choose to date, have sex, and marry men after years of experiencing misogyny, abuse, and disrespect in heterosexual relationships? Is it really because of romantic love? Or is it because these women don't want to face the social and economic consequences of ceasing the heterosexual lifestyle? How could any of us as feminists deny that compulsory heterosexuality influences heterosexual women to make the lifestyle choices they make. 
The question of lesbianism's origins, of whether lesbianism is biological or a choice, is one that lesbians, feminists, and lesbian feminists have been arguing about since the 70s. Focusing specifically on lesbianism instead of expanding the question to all female sexuality is a mistake. If we can ask whether lesbians are born or made by choice, we can ask the same question of heterosexual and bisexual women, and we should. As common as it is for little girls to experience the cruelty, abuse, and sexual predation of boys and men in childhood, as common as it is nowadays for young women to express their disdain for men online and off, somehow most of these girls grow up and choose to risk their lives and their health to pursue traditional heterosexual marriage. Why? What is going on in the psyches of these women? Is their heterosexuality truly an innate biological quality they just can't help but feel and act on? Or is their heterosexuality the result of a lifetime of grooming and social conditioning? Some lesbians know from early childhood that they are lesbians and never have any confusion about it. Many of these lesbians never engage sexually or romantically with males. Some of them experiment with heterosexuality in youth anyway, because that's how powerful compulsory heterosexuality for women and girls is. For these lesbians, it doesn't feel like there is any choice involved at all when it comes to their exclusive romantic love and attraction to other women. So many other lesbians insist that human sexuality, and especially their sexuality, is innate because they fear that if we explore the idea of female sexuality being to some degree a choice, or the result of environmental factors, the heterosexuals will tell us to simply choose heterosexuality and deny us civil and legal rights as lesbians on the basis that we choose. These concerns are valid, but I don't think lesbians should base their understanding and conceptualization of female sexuality on the anti-homosexual bigotry of heterosexuals. Questioning the role of choice, social pressure, and social conditioning in female sexuality is not so much about gauging how natural lesbianism is. It's about gauging how natural female heterosexuality is, and how much lesbian feelings and desires are suppressed in women who live as heterosexual. I don't believe we can ever know what the true ratio of heterosexual to lesbian women would be if we lived in a truly pro-lesbian world. In a pro-lesbian world, little girls would know from early childhood what lesbians are and would be told by their parents and other adults that they could grow up to be a lesbian. In a pro-lesbian world, lesbians would be ubiquitous in media and lesbian love would be presented as beautiful, natural, and even ideal for women. In a pro-lesbian world, parents would be happy about their daughters being lesbians, and romantic love between women would be respected, admired, and encouraged. In a pro-lesbian world, homosexual marriage would have been legal from the get-go. A pro-lesbian world is one where using the word lesbian or dyke as an insult is unthinkable. A pro-lesbian world is one where you can be openly lesbian anywhere and receive the same respect, job opportunities, wages, housing consideration, etc. as heterosexual women. The numbers of heterosexual, bisexual, and lesbian women would absolutely not be the same in that world as they are in this one. The numbers of lesbians who never engage voluntarily in heterosexual activity would be astronomically higher. 
The number of bisexual women who choose to predominantly or exclusively date and have sex with other women would be much higher. If female sexuality is truly 100% biological and has nothing to do with social factors, then the percentages of heterosexual, bisexual, and lesbian women would be identical in the pro-lesbian world I just described to what they are in this reality, and I can't see how that could possibly be true. We cannot underestimate the power of social forces in our lives. We can't pretend that everything we've seen and heard from the people in our personal lives and in public life have had no effect on us. We are all products of our culture, for better or worse. While lesbians who come out late in life or who experiment with heterosexuality in youth are not any less lesbian than the lifelong, never-het lesbians, and while bisexual women who do not realize their bisexuality until adulthood, after only sexually and romantically engaging with men, are not less bisexual than women who have histories of same-sex romance and sexual intercourse, these women do serve as examples of compulsory heterosexuality at work. They are also proof that women choose what to do with their bodies and their lives, and they can choose to act in contradiction to their own feelings and attraction. In that sense, sexuality is absolutely a choice. Even if you're a lesbian who chooses to live a lesbian life, you are choosing. You could choose instead to live in the closet and reap the benefits of heterosexual marriage, the way most bisexual women do and the way many lesbians have done over the last hundred years. You could choose, like some religious lesbians, to be single and celibate for life because of your religion's position on homosexuality. Nothing about our romantic or sexual lives is inevitable. Even if we have no control over our feelings, sexual attractions, and impulses, we do have complete and exclusive control over our behavior. Those of us women who live in highly developed and or secular countries where we can legally pursue higher education, have careers, own property, and retain our own money, have absolute control over the choices we make. We choose how to live our lives, what kind of relationships to engage in and prioritize, if we have sex and who we have it with, whether or not we have children, etc. We are responsible for those choices and therefore how our lives unfold. We are responsible for the level at which we cooperate with the heterosexual male agenda and the level to which we thereby contribute to male power. Whether you feel heterosexual, bisexual, lesbian, or asexual, you do not have to romantically or sexually interact with men. You do not have to put a man at the center of your life. You do not have to live with men, serve men, financially support men, date men, marry men, reproduce with men, or give men the time of day outside of a professional context. All of these acts are choices. What we should all be doing as feminist women is prioritizing loving and investing ourselves emotionally and energetically in other women. Leading a female-centric life, having a female primary partner, even living as a female separatist does not require lesbian sex or romance. You can make these choices even if you're a heterosexual or bisexual woman. You can make them even as a single lesbian or an asexual woman. If you really are a feminist, renouncing men and leading a female-centric life should not feel like a sacrifice. Making your emotional social life female-centric or female-exclusive should feel liberating and rewarding. There is more love, respect, care, and security to be found in our relationships with other women than anything we could have with men. 
Our female sexuality and lifestyle are political, but they are also obviously personal. Cutting men out and putting other women center stage is not just about being a good feminist. It's about finding greater happiness and well-being as an individual woman. It's about living the best life you can live in this patriarchal society. That concludes WLRN's 59th edition podcast on sex and sexuality. I'm April No. WLRN would like to thank Sheila Jeffries for speaking with us on this topic. Thank you so much, Sheila, for your insights and for all that you do for our women's movement. Until next time, stay strong in the struggle. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. And if you're interested in joining our team, we're always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Thistle Patterson signing off for now. And I'm Sekhmet Shiaul. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we'll create our show around footage Jenna and Thistle capture at the Women Picket DC event happening on March 8th. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for Edition 60 on Thursday, April 1st. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and full-length interview are released, please sign up on the WLRN WordPress site. Until next time, keep fighting male power. Have you heard the news? WLRN is celebrating five years this spring. Help us to celebrate by pre-ordering your anniversary merch on our new website, coming soon. This is Jenna DeQuarto thanking you for five years of listenership and support as we navigate these DIY waters. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you. So please comment, like, and share widely. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after 